Shalom, I'm Rabbi Scott. Welcome to the ministry of Beth Yeshua Messianic Synagogue in Fort Myers, Florida. We hope and pray that this teaching will be a blessing to you. If you would like to support our ministry, please go to our website, www.bethyeshuafla.com to donate online, or we can accept your donation over text. Please text the word GIVE to the number 239-747-7526. Thank you for your support. Blessings and Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. We're continuing our study of, of Elijah this week, and I want to begin with a question for you. The question is, did Elijah ever make any mistakes? Did he ever make a mistake? Now, we have the record, and then we have what we know of humanity, human beings, so we can guess that human beings make mistakes. Elijah was probably a human being, probably made a mistake, so we know that. But in the record, are we given any places where Elijah would make a mistake? What we're given is a story, a narrative of Elijah where at multiple places he says this, that I stand in the presence of Adonai and so on and so forth. And so his, his confidence level is very high. And when he's speaking in the narrative, he says these things like, there will be no rain except upon my word. Uh, and and as, as the Lord lives before whom I stand. And so we've got this this Elijah character who, at various places, we think that he's acting almost uh, independently, certainly acting at, on a very high level of confidence. He's making very bold statements. Uh, we see at various times and places in the Bible where Adonai sort of almost concedes to a man, to, concedes to a person when a person does or says things. Like, for example, Abraham. Uh, if 50 are found righteous, uh, will you indeed destroy the city? If 10 are found righteous, would you, would you save this city? Uh, so Abraham is there negotiating, uh, taking an almost adversarial position with Adonai as they negotiate for the future of the city of, uh, cities of Sodom, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Uh, Moses had some moments where he uh, uh, stood up to God, in a sense. Uh, Joshua uh, made this statement, the sun will stand in the sky on this day. We accept these statements, and then we see the result in the narrative. We, we, we accept the statement, Joshua says, the sun's going to stand still in the sky, and then we read the narrative, and oh, it ended well. But that's not real time, right? In the real time, Joshua is saying, the sun stands still in the sky, and then we all wait to see what happens. Check your watch or your sundial, see what happens. Consider the uncertainty of making a statement such as this in real time the uncertainty which must accompany much of our humanity. To assume that Elijah had no uncertainty is unreasonable. James chapter 5 says Elijah was a man like us. So there had to have been some uncertainty. We have our uncertainties, our insecurities, and our fears. So I wanna, we're going to press on into um, uh, chapter uh, 19 this week. A little bit of review. Um, Elijah, or Eliyahu, as it says in the text, the Hebrew way of pronouncing his name. Eliyahu has been hiding with the widow of Sidon, where Itzavel was from. <clears throat> Adonai tells him to go present himself to Ahav, or Ahab. 
Along the way, Eliyahu meets Ovadia, Obadiah, the servant of Ahav, and, uh, and, and we have this little narrative that ensues from the, the chapter, 1 Kings chapter 18. Verse 1, a long time has passed. Then in the third year, the word of Adonai came to Eliyahu, go present yourself to Ahav, and I will send rain down on the land. Um, verse 3, now Ovadiah greatly revered Adonai. For example, when Itzavel was murdering Adonai's prophets, Ovadiah took a hundred prophets, hid them in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. So this is Ovadiah, or Obadiah, as some of your translations might say. Uh, he is a righteous and faithful man of Adonai. He has done things. He has put himself in a dangerous position uh, by secreting away these prophets, hiding a hundred of them, two in each cave of 50. So when Eliyahu is on his way to confront Achav, Eliyahu runs first into Ovadia. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 7, Ovadia was on the road when suddenly Eli Eliyahu encountered him. Ovadia recognized him, fell on his face, and said, Is it really you, my lord Eliyahu? Verse 8, he answered, Yes, it is. I, tell you, I go, tell your master, Eliyahu is here. Ovadia replied, How have I sinned that you would hand your servant over to Achav to kill me? Now what's Ovadia talking about here? Uh, we see the character of Ovadia. We see that Eliyahu uh, receives this information that, that he sees uh, Ovadia uh, here on the road. Ovadia is concerned that he's going to die because Ovadia is going to report to Ahav that Eliyahu's here, that Elijah has come, and uh, Ahav is, is going to go look for him, and, and of course Eliyahu is going to disappear again because that's what happens. And, um, and so, uh, so uh, Ovadia is concerned for his life. Verse 12 of 1 Kings chapter 18, it says this, I, your servant, have revered Adonai from my youth. Wasn't my Lord told, that is, wasn't Eliyahu told what I did when Itzavel killed Adonai's prophets, how I hid a hundred of Adonai's prophets by fifties in caves and supplied their food and water. And so Avadya is saying, look, I've got my bona fides. I'm, I, I secreted and hid away these prophets. I am a servant of Adonai. This is the legacy of Avadya a servant and a Mashiach of prophets. And he tells Eliyahu this, this story. So what would you do if you were in this scenario, if you're the Elijah walking down the road and you see this and this fellow says, well, I've secreted away, I've hidden away a hundred prophets. And you're on your way to confront Ahav. Would you think about bringing them with you or at least recruiting them for a little assistance and backup? This is hostile territory you're going into. It might be nice to have some people on your side. But no, uh, Eliyahu confronts Ahav and the people of Israel together, but he does it alone. So Eliyahu presents himself to Ahav. We have this showdown with the prophets of Baal. Eliyahu puts him to death. And then we have this, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse uh, uh, 41. Eliyahu says to Ahav, get up, eat, and drink because I hear the sound of heavy rain. Um, uh, verse 42, Ahav went up to eat and drink. Uh, what this looks like, it reminds us of the um, Shlemim offering, which is a peace offering, which is where you have the meal. You, you share some of the meal, the offering, with the priest and with Adonai, which is the consuming fire that, that burns up the offering. But a portion of the offering is, is pulled out and is is kept for the priest and for you to share with the priest. It's a peace offering. It's like we're all eating this together. 
And this is what you see here. Achav is eating the sacrifice in the same way the priest would eat the sacrifice, like it's a shlemim offering, sacrifice, the peace offering. Uh, this ought to have begin the beginning, been the beginning of, of Achav and his sort of repentance and change. Um, so it says this, uh, Achav went up to eat and drink um, while Eliyahu went to the top of the Carmel, the mountain, and he bowed down to the ground and put his face between his knees. So Eliyahu has the audacity to say to Achav, you need to get up because it's going to rain. And yet at the same time, a few moments later, Eliyahu is going up on the mountain and he puts his face between his knees in prayer. Verse 43, now he says to his servant, go up, look out toward the sea. The servant went and said, there's nothing there. Seven times he said, go again. Now this couldn't have, unlikely that it would have happened one after the other. There was probably some time spent in prayer between each of these. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, who knows? There was some time spent as Eliyahu is praying and then he says to the servant, go and see. And then he prays, go and see. Verse 44, the seventh time the servant said, there's a cloud coming up out of the sea, no bigger than a man's hand. And Eliyahu now says, go up and say to Achav, prepare your chariot and get down the mountain before the rain stops you. A little later, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and a heavy rain began to fall. Um, Yahav, riding in his chariot, made for Yitzreel, which is where Isabel was. The hand of Adonai was on Eliyahu. He tucked up his clothing and ran ahead of Achav to the entrance of Yitzreel. Achav is in a chariot with horses, and uh, Eliyahu outruns Achav. Now, by some maps and some conjectures, we're looking at 20 to 30 miles. So uh, Eliyahu outran uh, Achav in his chariot for the distance of a marathon, most likely. Um, notice the uncertainty of Eliyahu. He bows down seven times and has the servant go check seven times. Sending the servant to check the weather. It's, it's, what I want you to, to, to see is that he was a man like us. And there would have been some tension. There would have been some anxiety in that moment. Even though he's done everything at the word of Adonai, when, when Eliyahu Elijah is preparing the sacrifice and he prays to God, he says, I've done everything according to your word. So he, he somehow had revelation from Adonai to do all this stuff. Everything that he's done, he has done according to the word of Adonai because he stands in the presence of Adonai. So he is this man who stands in the presence of Adonai, has, re, has heard from God what he's supposed to do, has done it according to those steps. And yet, he's a man like us. There's still going to be some uncertainty, and that's why he prayed seven times. So Eliyahu has arrived at Jezreel. Achav arrives a little later and tells Yitzhavel the story, and now we've arrived at 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, Achav tells Yitzhavel, Jezebel, that, uh, that of course, uh, Eliyahu has put to death all these prophets. And look what she says to him in the first place. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1, Achav told Itzavel everything Eliyahu had done and how he had put all the prophets to the sword. Itzavel sent a messenger to say to Eliyahu, may the gods do terrible things to me and worse ones besides if by this time tomorrow I haven't taken your life just as you took theirs. On seeing that, Eliyahu got up and fled for his life. So he runs away into the desert, leaves behind his servant, travels an additional day, 
And then at the end of all things, he lies down to die under a tree. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, But he himself went a day farther into the desert until he came to a broom tree. He sat down under it and prayed for his own death. Enough, he said. Now Adonai, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. We have this pillar, this ultimate expression of faith and power and authority. A man like us who stands in the presence of Adonai is reduced to despair, to the point of death, to the point of being suicidal. There are a couple aspects to this point in the narrative. First are the uncertainties. Uncertainty as in, I've done all these things at your word. There's there's almost a desperate plea to that. I've done it according to what you said. But there's an uncertainty, so what happens next? And then the rain came, but it almost didn't. He had the audacity to speak to Ahab and say, the rain is coming, but then it almost didn't. And he prayed seven times. The prophets were put to death, but Ahab and Itzavel are still around. And Itzavel still has incredible power. And reading the story, reading the the subsequent chapters, we find that both these characters actually stick around for quite a few years after this. This principle of uncertainty is the leading edge of dependence upon Adonai. Depending absolutely on Adonai will not add to your confidence or dispel uncertainty. Uncertainty. In fact, I would suggest to you that living on the edge of absolute dependence upon Adonai will actually increase your uncertainty on a day-to-day basis. Hear what I'm saying. There's a difference between having faith and trust in Adonai and being certain of an outcome. All of us have been in this place where we've had to trust Adonai but we're uncertain as to what that means and what that's really going to look like. And actually, the more we depend on Adonai, the more there's an element of uncertainty to everything we do. The man of Adonai, in the midst of the prophetic task, if he is capable of it, will be entirely in the spirit as he moves and breathes and has his being. But here is the overwhelming testimony. When you are there in that moment, in that place of being entirely in the spirit, depending on him for instructions, we seldom know all the steps. Look at, look at some of the, the testimonies we have. Uh, get up and go into the land I will show you, Adonai says to Abraham. How's that for uncertainty? Uh, Go and sacrifice your son at the place I will show you. And, And you're required to obey Adonai at this very high level, and yet it's almost as if your uncertainty grows the closer you get to that level. Do you see that? Uh, uh, Go into the land, and I will show you the place where I will cause my name to dwell, Adonai says to Israel. I will show you the place. I'm a comb. There are are layers and levels of uncertainty in following Adonai. 
these are provided for you to exercise your faith and to grow in knowledge and in faith, for you to partner with Adonai in the task, for you to demonstrate your complete surrender, not only to the task, but to the identity. To be a man or woman completely dependent on Adonai doesn't mean just that you're following a bunch of steps. It's kind of like GPS. The GPS tells us when to turn, and, and, and one of my favorite lines is when the GPS says, um, turn at the next light. Go through this light and turn at the next one. <laughs> it knows that I've got a light between me and the light. It's, it's organizing my steps. Don't get confused here. Don't go off on the wrong turn here. But it's almost as if the higher level the prophet or the man of God or the woman of God is serving and obeying, the greater the uncertainty. And not just in the uncertainty of the tasks, but also this applies to the identity. It's not just about obedience and tasks. It's not just about step by step by step. It's also about becoming a man or a woman of Adonai. It's what it means in the text when he says he's bringing his sons to glory. The other aspect at this point in the narrative, we're talking about uncertainty, the other aspect of this is fear. We cannot deny that this pillar, this man like us, Eliyahu, but not like us because I, I, I'm nothing close to this. This man of authority and power and access to Adonai before whom I stand, says Eliyahu, this man who was terrified of Itzavel, of Jezebel. So terrified that at a little scrap of paper or parchment of some kind with a threat of death, and he turns and runs into the wilderness. First Kings chapter 18, verse 19. Now order all Israel to assemble before me on Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Isabel's table. Notice here the prophets who eat at Isabel's table. But this isn't all the prophets. There were the prophets that eat at Itzavel's table, but there are also the prophets that she put to death. You see, when Itzavel is in the land, when Jezebel is in the land, things get very polarized. You're either adding her at her table or you're put to death. This means they are beholden to her. They, they are at her table. They owe her their life. They are sustained. But it's not a humble existence. It's not starvation likely very opulent, rich, luxurious lifestyle. However, in opposition to this is persecution if you oppose her, for she had put many to death by this point. Itzavel will put to death all who oppose her and bless and protect all who appease her. There is something profoundly frightening, even in my limited experience, when you are dealing with an Itzavel-type spirit. There's something frightening about the power that is wielded. There is a type of spiritual battle that continues to this day. Uh, some people call it a spirit of Jezebel. Uh, it's, it's the same kind of spiritual battle characterized by an unholy power and influence over a person of authority, sometimes in the kingdom, sometimes in, in secular politics in the world. Uh, and it is usually in the, by somebody who uses that power for evil purposes, using flattery and power to prop up and build up the authority. Consider that Ahav wanted the field of Navot, but Navot refused to sell it to him. 
It's a vel consoled and comforted Achav with flattery and with kind words. And then what did she do? She had Navot put to death and gave the field as a gift to Achav. Later, that same field became the death ground for some of his descendants who were thrown there, and the wild animals came and devoured them. The point is that the confrontation with this spirit, this principality in the demonic realm, this Itzavel-type spirit, is one that is especially frightening for the people of Adonai. And this is why I believe Eliyahu, the man of Adonai, ran into the wilderness and laid down to die. There's another aspect to this character type, this lifestyle of living in absolute dependence upon Adonai, living out that prophetic task, living out that prophetic identity the way, Adonai, the way Eliyahu did, the way Elijah did. And it is this, that the despair of death would be a natural conclusion to a life lived in abject obedience to Adonai, but that life has been unfruitful or unsuccessful. In other words, if you've given your life completely over to Adonai for a task that you feel that he has called you to, you feel that he has given you a mission, and that mission fails, that task fails, or somehow you fail that task, where do you go from there? If you've given your life completely over to Adonai, where do you go next? How do you recover that? Yeah, suicide would be a viable option at that point because what are you going to do with yourself? When you trust Adonai completely, you have nowhere else to go when you fail. When you trust Adonai completely, your life is over if you fail because you were trusting in Adonai. And whether it's your failure or the world's failure or some perceived failure that somehow Adonai hasn't done what you thought he was going to do, where do you go? Eliyahu is in this moment here where he put to death all these prophets, and yet the real power is in Isabel, in the Jezebel. And he realizes that in a moment. And the last three and a half years has come to nothing. And so he goes into the desert with his fear. What is it we're describing here? Uncertainty, persecution, and fear. All of this produces loneliness. The net effect is loneliness. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 5. Eliyahu went into the wilderness to die alone. He lay down under the broom tree and went to sleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on the hot stones and a jug of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel came again a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank, and on the strength of that meal traveled 40 days and nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Some people stumble over the 40 years or the 40 days and nights journey. It's likely less than 300 miles from the wilderness of Beersheba, which is where near where uh, Elijah was at this point to, to Mount Horeb. It wouldn't take 40 days typically. When Israel was trying to make the journey, uh, they were they were told it was an 11-day journey. So what happened over these 40 days and nights? For me, this is resolved with the idea that it may not have been a straight line, that Elijah was on a journey. 
It was a 40-day and 40-night journey, meandering, whether through the desert or through the valleys or through the waste, through the ravines. Eliyahu's journey could have meandered. What matters is he was led 40 days and nights on the strength of a single meal, fasting for 40 days alone that entire time. To arrive finally at Mount Horeb. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 9, he went into a cave and spent the night. It's interesting that there's a cave here on Mount Horeb. There are two possible caves on Mount Horeb that might be significant to us. The first one comes from Shemot, Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Moses said, I beg you, show me your glory. Adonai replied, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. In your presence, I will pronounce the name of Adonai. Verse 21, here he said, as a place near me, stand on the rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you inside a crevice in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So there was going to be a cleft or a crack or a hole in the rock that would cover up Moses. And we have this cave or this hole in the rock where Elijah spent the night. Another possible example, though, Shemot chapter 17, Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, the whole community of the people of Israel left the seen desert, traveling in stages. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water. The people quarreled, give us water to drink. Verse 4, Moshe cried out, cried out to Adonai. Verse 6, I will stand in front of you there on the rock in Horeb. You are to strike the rock, and water will come out of it so the people can drink. Notice the geometry. I will stand, Adonai will stand, in front of you, there on the rock, you were to stand facing me and strike the rock with the staff, with the rod. And water will come out of it so the people can drink. Moshe did this in the sight of the people, the leaders of Israel. The place was named Massah, testing, and Medivah, quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Adonai by asking, is Adonai with us or not? The water coming out of the rock was in enough volume to supply for the people all their needs. It had to have been a huge gushing torrent of water. Where did the water go after the people left? Because the waste of, of Sinai didn't become a lush, green, verdant valley. There was no water. What you would have been left with is a hole in the rock, a cave. The water would have dried up afterwards, leaving behind a cave. And look at the name of this water or cave. Masa, testing. Are you with us? Continuing with Eliyahu, 1 Kings chapter 19. There he went into the cave and spent the night. Then the word of Adonai came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Eliyahu? Verse 10, he answered, I have been very zealous for Adonai, the God of armies, because the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, broken down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. Now I'm the only one left, and they're coming after me to kill me too. What's wrong with that statement? What's Eliyahu saying? Where's the error in that statement? He's not the only one left. Ovadia had a hundred that he had secreted away. And Eliyahu passed on him, didn't take him, didn't, didn't want to do anything with him. And here he stands before Adonai and he says, I'm the only one left. I'm all alone. Continuing on, 1 Kings 19, verse 11, go outside, stand on the mountain before Adonai. And right then and there, Adonai went past. A mighty blast of wind tore the mountains apart and broke the rocks in pieces before Adonai. But Adonai was not in the wind. After the wind came the earthquake, but Adonai was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, fire broke out. 
But Adonai was not in the fire. After the fire came a quiet, subdued voice. When Eliyahu heard it, he covered his face with his cloak, face with his cloak stepped out and stood at the entrance to the cave. Then a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Eliyahu? Anytime Adonai asks you a question, just make a note of that because that question will follow you the rest of your life. If Adonai asks you the same question twice, well, I don't know what to say other than um, you might be in for it. <laughs> what are you doing? Why, why are you here? What are you doing, Eliyahu? And what does Eliyahu do? He gives him the same answer. I have been zealous, very zealous for Adonai, the God of army, because the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, broken down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And again, he says this for the second time, now I'm the only one left, and they're after me to kill me too. So remember the sense of despair and loneliness at the prophetic battle with Itzavel and Achav. Out of this isolation, Eliyahu first runs away to die. Why are you here? Not because Eliyahu was alone. Indeed, he was not alone. But because the task was a lonely task. When you are alone, you are tested. Your resolve is tested. You demonstrate to the world and to yourself what you believe. Jacob wrestled alone one night. Yeshua wrestled in prayer one night. Yeshua wrestled in the, in, in the wilderness with the enemy, the Lord of lies. Where did Eliyahu go when he thought Itzavel had won? Into the desert to die because his life and his mission and his purpose had failed. It was over. Then upon the strength of the food brought by the angel, he went into the desert to Horeb to stand further in the presence of Adonai. Let me ask you, when the world attacks you, when the world wins, when you have found your life's purpose, perhaps to be a failure, when you thought you were following the word of Adonai, when you thought he told you to go here and do this, and you go there and you do that, and it doesn't work out well, where do you go? Do you run to the presence of Adonai? Or do you push him away? Do you run to the cave on Mount Horeb, the cleft of the rock? Zechariah 13 says this, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And this is quoted at the end of the gospel narratives because as they struck Yeshua, the Talmudim scattered. Who is this shepherd from Zechariah chapter 13? Strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. Who is the shepherd? It is the rock that is Yeshua. Upon this rock, he says, speaking of himself, I will build my community. So it was that the rock of Yeshua was struck in the same way the rock of Horeb was struck. The rock of Horeb was struck and out of which came living waters. What did Yeshua say to the woman at the well? I will give waters of life. In Revelation, it says, I am the fountain of the waters of life. So I say this, strike the rock and the shepherd and the sheep, strike the rock, the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. Strike the sheep, and they will gather to the rock. Consider the loneliness of Yeshua. 
sent into the wilderness for temptation, for testing, praying after sending the Talmudim away, the loneliness of Yeshua at the Mount of Transfiguration when the Talmudim fell asleep, in the garden when the Talmudim fell asleep. Consider the moment of crucifixion when he says, Behold your son, behold your mother. Think of the loneliness and the isolation. Why are you here, Eliyahu? Adonai says to Eliyahu. Because he felt alone? Perhaps. Or maybe Eliyahu was there because it's a lonely task. It's a solitary task. I think that's the greater understanding here. It's a solitary task because the loneliness and the solitary nature of it coalesces, it focuses, it, it presses in the purpose. It distills the moment. Why are you here, Eliyahu? I'm here because I desire to do your will. Remember what it says in Psalm 40, verse 8? So then I said, here I am, I'm coming. Isn't that what Eliyahu did? He traveled 40 days and nights by some journey to come to the mountain of Adonai. Here I am, I'm coming. In the scroll of a book, it is written about me. Doing your will, my God, is my joy. Your Torah is my inmost being. Here I am. Is not this Eliyahu here at the Mount Horeb, at the mountain of Adonai? Did he not enter the cave, the very cave where the rock was struck and the waters flowed, these waters that were called Massah, testing? Did he not say to Adonai, here I am? In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I desire to do your will. There is an aspect to this Elijah task that is completed only in that solitary intimacy with Adonai. We emphasize community in Messianic Judaism. We emphasize community in Jewish tradition. And, and of course, the emphasis on community is throughout the entire Tanakh, throughout the entire Bible. And it's very necessary to be in community. But there's an aspect to this journey especially on the, on the leading edge of the prophetic realm, when you're following Adonai, when he's telling you what to do and where to go, and when you're obeying him on that level, that there's a very solitary aspect to it. You will not be alone technically. You will be surrounded by the remnant. You'll be surrounded by the community. But the task and your faith is yours alone. Because this is what it means to accept an Elijah task. It means to become an Elijah. To accept an Elijah task means to become an Elijah. Where it is just you and Adonai. This is the preparation of the Elijah man or the Elijah woman. And loneliness is the forge which fires the iron will of obedience to Adonai so that I can honestly say, I desire to do your will, O oh my God. Shabbat Shalom.